Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com covered. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Now, today we are going to be talking about breakups, but it's not a miserable conversation. We talk about them in a slightly more positive way than you may have heard them talked about before. Our guest today is Rosie Willoughby. She's a comedian who was dumped by her girlfriend by email in 2011, and it led her on a journey to investigate, understand and conquer the psychology of heartbreak. But before we hear from Rosie, I want to talk about another heartbreak uh, in the news this week in terms of what's going on in in Afghanistan and the devastating impact that the Taliban taking over there is going to have on women in that country. Because, of course, we know that when the Taliban last ruled Afghanistan between 1996 and 2001, they did all sorts of things like closed girls schools and banned women from working. And I know that the women there and the girls there are terrified of knocks on the door, terrified of you know, being forced into sexual slavery and all the other things that the Taliban are associated with. Uh, Just a bit of background, after the US invaded in 2001, restrictions on women there eased. And even as the war raged, there was a local commitment to improving women's rights that was supported by international groups and donors. It led to the creation of new legal protections. And in 2009, the elimination of violence against women law criminalised rape, battery and forced marriage and made it illegal to stop women or girls from working or studying. But all those rights and freedoms are, you know, very tentative. And we're looking at the Taliban now and in the press conferences, which are so unprecedented, you never get to hear from the Taliban. And they seem to be in those press conferences telling the world what they want to hear. They're saying women will be able to go to school and university and that there will be an Afghan inclusive Islamic government, though it's not clear at all what form that will take and if the new leadership will include women. I saw one video where members of the Taliban were asked by a female reporter about women being involved in the new government and the man in a beard had to ask them to stop filming because he was laughing so much at the prospect of women being involved in any kind of decision-making in government, which is very depressing. Farzana Kochai, who was serving as a member of the Afghan parliament, has said she doesn't know what's going to come next. She says there's been no clear announcement about the form of the government in the future. Do we have a parliament in the future government or not, she said. She's also concerned about her future freedoms as a woman. This is something that concerns me more, she said. Every woman is thinking about this. We are just trying to understand, will women be able to work and occupy a job or not? Now, as I said, the Taliban spokesman, Suhail Shaheen, he said on Monday that under the Taliban, girls will be allowed to study, that schools will be open and girls and women will be going to schools as teachers and students. But then if you talk to people uh, or listen to stories from people on the ground, that points to a very different picture. And there is a deep mistrust of the people who caused such misery in the last rule. Um, I think anyway, this is just completely outside. But when it comes to Afghanistan and the Taliban, 
I don't think you can believe a word they say. And it's only going to be their actions that will tell us the truth. It is really depressing. And on the women's podcast, we're thinking of all the women and girls in Afghanistan and the men who love them. And we're thinking of all the um, women reporters and women in journalism trying to do their jobs, which are going to be inevitably made more difficult now because of their gender. And of course, we're thinking of all the Afghanistan people who've made their homes in Ireland and hoping that the Irish government opens our doors to as many uh, refugees from Afghanistan as we possibly can, because we've all seen those dreadful scenes of the the people trying to cling on to the um, airplanes that left. So it's a dreadful story. We'll be covering it here on the Women's Podcast and keeping a close eye on what happens for women there. Now, in 2011, comedian and podcaster Rosie Wilby was dumped by her girlfriend by email. Has to be one of the worst ways ever. Makes me think of um, the time I think Daniel Day-Lewis broke off with his girlfriend or his fiance by fax. That was probably even worse than email. Now, Rosie has been obsessing about breakups ever since. And her book and podcast, The Breakup Monologues, The Unexpected Joy of Heartbreak, is a love letter to her breakups and a celebration of what they taught her. Her exploration of the science of breakup is partly an exploration and partly a way to make sure she doesn't break up with the woman she's currently with, her fiancé, known through the book as Girlfriend. So if you've ever been broken up with or are contemplating breaking up with someone, there will be something in this chat for you. Here she is, breakup queen Rosie Wilby. Rosie, thank you very much for joining us on the Women's Podcast. Why did you write this book? What sparked it? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Why am I so obsessed with breakups? Yes. Um, <laughs> well, it really all came about 10 years ago when I was dumped by email. And as a comedian, of course, I joked at the time that I felt much better once I'd corrected her spelling <laughs> and punctuation <laughs> and changed the font. Uh, breakup in wingdings is much better. But that said, of course, it was a real shock. Um, it was a really complex and difficult process um, of going through all these different stages, these different feelings and emotions and working out how to move forwards, how to feel sort of complete again, because there is a loss of an imagined future. Um, And, you know, subsequently, I've learned that we are going through a type of withdrawal akin to a drug withdrawal when we are Um, going through that breakup process. So it really is a hugely complex emotional thing that is happening to us. So I really wanted to explore that. And in my comedy work, I've always explored questions around our sort of human relationships and connections. And I think partly my fascination with that has come from being gay and feeling different to other people in how, you know, I might connect with people and have relationships, you know, and and in in some ways it differs from the model that I saw growing up and we see in all the movies and the love songs. So, um, yeah, I was really interested in exploring all of this, uh, you know, in in a podcast and now, of course, a book. So it, I just think it's a universal topic. We've all been through a breakup. We've all felt terrible. But what's really interesting to me is that many of us have actually come out the other side stronger. Has exploring breakups in the way, in the in-depth way that you have, using your comedy, using science and research and everything, Did it help you come to terms with the pain of that 2011 breakup? Was that 
a healing thing to do? Or were you staring the belly of the beast? Was that making it worse? (laughs) No, for me, I think because I have an inquiring mind and although obviously I work in the creative and performing arts now, I was always interested in science at school as well. I I had um, my father was a maths lecturer and interested in science and how things worked in the world. And my mum was the creative. She was an English literature lecturer. And so I suppose I had kind of both both sides of, of that informing me. And so I do have from my dad that sort of questioning mind, that logical and rational mind that wants to understand things and work problems out, which, of course, when you come to human relationships, you can't always. It's not a Rubik's Cube. Mm. Um, or maybe it is because they're pretty complicated too. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I think I I really wanted to feel like there were some answers and some kind of solution some comfort in knowing that other people had found this process really really difficult as well and and understanding some of the science of what is going on in the brain to me is comforting (laughs) (laughs) I I think it has been to other people as well who sent me messages saying that they they have read the bit about you know, when an anthropologist that I interview says it, you know, it is like a drug withdrawal process. Other people who've read that, they're like, oh my goodness, that is why I just felt so all at sea for really quite a prolonged period of time. Mm. Um, in your intro to the book, you say that uh, lesbians know the most about breakups. So tell us that. Give us, tell us why you're a better place <laughs> than a heterosexual person to talk about breaking up. <laughs> Well, it's slightly tongue in cheek um, as a way of, you know, making sure that um, straight people read my book as well, because <laughs> I've got the inside track and we're slightly ahead of the curve, you know, us, us queer people. Um, <laughs> but um, it is sort of true in a way in that lesbians actually have the highest divorce rate of anybody. I don't know if you know this, but we divorce at several times the rate of gay men. And we have very rapidly caught up with with heterosexual couples. I mean, it's, it's hard to compare in a sense because, um, of course, same sex couples have only been able to get married relatively recently. But but we do seem to separate at quite some frequency. Why is that, do you think, <laughs> with your inquiring I, mind? <laughs> yes, well, it does make sense if you also look at the statistics for heterosexual divorces, because 75% of those are initiated by the woman. So it does kind of make sense that women seem to be the ones that are calling time on a relationship. Now, that may be to do with the fact that women are, you know, we we always have these cliches, don't we, about women being better communicators and perhaps we are the ones to say if something's not working. But also, I think we really don't acknowledge in our culture and our society how restless women can be romantically and sexually. We tend to think that women are the monogamous ones, the faithful ones that, you know, have their one dream man usually, or perhaps woman or or person. Um, But, you know, I think there's many, many experiments that have have come to light recently that have been conducted in the science world. Um, And I've taken part in one of these experiments recently, and we'll talk about that. But... Um, you know, many, many experiments show that women do have a really, really broad sexuality, much broader than our own sort of descriptions and labels that we attach to our sexuality would tend to describe and tend to suggest. 
And I think these cultural restrictions, if you like, that we've put around female sexuality are really sort of part of a, a patriarchal <laughs> kind of campaign to police female sexuality, really. Um, and, you know, our sort of Western ideas of monogamy are often about paternity and, and money and sort of patriarchy. So, <laughs> yeah, I do think there's there's you know, much more of a thirst for novelty, sexual and romantic novelty among women than we like to acknowledge. And I think it is demonstrated in lesbian serial monogamy and how we <laughs> we typically rotate through partners. But what I would say is the, the sort of good flip side of that is that lesbians very, very frequently separate very consciously and amicably. It's a small community and it's often a good idea to stay friends with your ex. So there's often very, very ethical relationships being brokered within the lesbian community. And I like to think that we pioneered conscious uncoupling before Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> so she rubbed it off you, did she? <laughs> she gave it a fancy, pretentious name, yeah. <laughs> no, it's a really interesting point about the small community having to keep friendly and so that you find ways to break up that are more amicable and not so that you're never going to speak to them again. And in the book, there's the girlfriend character. A part of your motivation for exploring breakups was so that you wouldn't want, have to break up again, that you could hold on to your relationship. How has that worked out? Well, I think I'm the proof in the pudding that learning from your breakups and actively trying to do so does help you stay in a relationship because myself and girlfriend, as she's called in the book, have just got engaged. Oh, congratulations. Well, that, that is good. You, you're, you're talking the talk and walking the walk so far anyway. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want to talk to you about the new language of uh, dating because I find I, I hear these things 10 years after everyone else. Now, I have heard of ghosting <laughs> where people just stop communicating and then you never hear from them again. You wonder what the hell happened. But can you talk us through a few others? Submarining, caspering, orbiting, marleying, breadcrumbing, icing and pocketing. Like, I can't believe there's all those words and I don't know what any of them mean. <laughs> I know, it's mad, isn't it? The pace at which this new lexicon of breakups is evolving. And we have these new terms all the time. Um, and I, I quite like the fact that we're developing new language, but I'm, I'm worried about a lot of these new terms for breaking up with people because they sort of give a cutesy name to perhaps not very ethical behaviours because we're sort of leaving people hanging a little bit. And I, I think generally people don't want to be left wondering what on earth happened if someone ghosts you and they just disappear. And all these other new terms are largely variants and spin-offs of the idea of ghosting. So, for example, submarining is where you ghost someone and then you just pop up again. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of, you know, people who you know, no, they're not really into somebody, but they get a bit bored and then they sort of bring them back off the bench, if you like, which is explains another term, which is benching and curving and icing. And some of these other terms actually describe very, very similar behaviours. And one of my favourite ones is actually marleying, where you pop up again at Christmas. Like a Christmas movie kind of thing. Is that the idea of marleying? Uh, marleying as in the ghost, the Dickens ghost from Scrooge. <laughs> So I guess some people just fancy a little Christmas fling. And maybe that's OK if everybody knows what the deal is and where they are. 
But if people think, oh, right, you know, this person has suddenly realised that I am the one for them and and they've seen sense and we're going to get married and run off into the sunset together. But this person is like, well, I'm going to dump them on New Year's Eve. (laughs) (laughs) Can we talk about some of the the types of breakups? Because you've had a few, haven't you? And uh, what would you say was the best one and what was the worst one? I've had a few. How dare you? <laughs> um, I have There's no indeed. shame in that. You've learned so much. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Um, I was on Radio 4 once and they they called me the queen of breakups. And I thought, is that good or is that bad? You know, if you've had lots of breakups, you've just had lots of relationships go wrong and maybe you've just made loads of really bad choices. Or then again, maybe you have kept evolving as a human being and realised that you need to move on and move forwards and you can make better choices. It's an interesting conundrum, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, what was the question? The best again? one and the worst one. So, oh, yes. Yeah. Mm, the best one and the worst one. Well, I think the worst one was being dumped by email. What did she say? <laughs> well, the email subject was pushing and pulling. And I thought, oh. Oh, Jesus, that doesn't sound good at all. <laughs> It doesn't sound promising, does it? (laughs) And I mentioned New Year just now. And funnily enough, this was a New Year's breakup. It was just in the first few days of January, which is a classic time. That's when, you know, all the kind of divorce lawyers and relationship therapists all suddenly get really, really busy because Christmas is that time when there's so much stress on families and couples to be having a brilliant time. And people realise, no, (laughs) I'm actually not happy. Um, And yeah, the other times when I think divorces often peak are after holidays or after times when we've spent a lot of time together and really intense times together. So, of course, it does mean that recently after lockdowns, we have seen divorce rates rise, sadly, and a lot of relationships suffer and flounder. So it's, it's really tricky times. But yeah, I think being dumped by email just felt a bit abrupt at the time. Um, Our culture hadn't moved on so much that we have all these behaviours like ghosting. I still felt myself that after a five-year partnership, we would have a face-to-face conversation and we would keep talking things through and sort of working things through. Um, And it feels a bit like someone else is taking control of the situation. I really liked one of my guests on, on my podcast, The Breakup Monologues, which, of course gives its title to the book as well, um, was the comedian Jess Foster Q. And she spoke about separating amicably with the father of her child when she began a relationship with a woman and sort of went on this real journey of transformation in her life. And she talked about how, you know, to separate kindly, you sort of need to give the other person as much control as they can have over how you do it, how long it takes, where you're going to live, how you're going to co-parent if if you have a child together, how you're going to do all the practical things, even though they have sadly no control over whether the breakup is going to happen or not. You have to sort of be clear and black and white about that. But you can give the other person a lot of say and voice and presence in how the breakup then unfolds. And I think that's a very conscious and compassionate thing to do. And I think that was why I was so hurt, because I felt I had no visibility at all in how the breakup was going to play out, which sort of 
chimed with how the, the relationship had panned out because it had been a bit of an invisible relationship because my partner was not out to her family, which was a really difficult situation for her. Um, you know, and I felt for her a lot, but also I struggled with the invisibility of that. I mean, again, I used to make jokes. She did once try to reassure me by telling me that her parents had quite enjoyed the film Brokeback Mountain. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you have an example in your life of a very good breakup? Yes, I think my most recent breakup, which kind of makes sense that I've been on this journey where my breakups have evolved and I've evolved and my relationships have evolved. But my most recent breakup was with um, a woman who I'm still friends with now. And she has just met somebody new who actually I'm friends with too. And we, you know, often might meet up and hang out together and socialise and be part of the same gang of friends. Um, And when we met, I was still kind of traumatised by the breakup, the email breakup. And so the relationship, although it was lovely and we really supported one another and were there for one another, and we actually grew in that five years that we were together, we kind of changed careers in some senses um, and certainly developed our careers and our individual and personal selves. Um But I think there was something not quite connected for me in terms of the deep romantic sexual and emotional connection that you expect to feel with a partner. And I think that was just because I was still healing when the relationship began. And I think, you know, we talk about rebound relationships and it's very hard to be completely present with somebody when you are still working out what the heck happened in your previous relationship and and trying to solve those puzzles and answer those questions. So I think when that relationship eventually ended, we had evolved so much and I had thought through what had happened in the previous relationship and how I didn't want to have this sort of acrimonious, prickly, difficult breakup. And we did it reasonably well so that we have been able to preserve a friendship and and stay in touch fairly frequently and mm. regularly. Um, you know, there, there was a moment, there was maybe a week when we were still living together and we were starting to sort of date other people and it, it was tricky. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're human. But uh, we we did it, we, you know, we, we certainly used the conscious uncoupling model as much as we could. Yeah. Um, now, we do tend to think very negatively of breakups. Um, you know, there's the nights crying and the, a lot of ice cream straight from the tub and all that kind of thing. But you really, in your research and in what you're trying to, the message you're trying to put forward is the kind of opportunities and for, for transformation and positive things that come out of breakups. Tell us a bit about that. I really think breakups can be an opportunity to be harnessed if if you can start to see it that way once the pain has subsided a little bit and you have, as you say, stopped sort of sitting on the floor crying and <laughs> eating ice cream straight from the tub in the fridge. Um, yeah, I've spoken to so many women who have begun new careers, gone travelling, new relationships, perhaps even changed the way they present their sexuality. Uh, You know, there are lots of late blooming lesbians who have left straight marriages and and found a sort of new aspect of themselves. Um, And I think it is, it can be a time for great exploration. And I certainly feel that those have been the times when I've been at my most creative and I've got 
really interesting work projects completed because you don't have the distraction of a partnership, which is hard work, which is, you know, something I talk about a lot in the book. And so really the times that I've launched new projects, um, launched my career in comedy, launched a PR company, wrote my first book, started the podcast. All of those things often happened in those, usually for me, quite short gaps between relationships, but they were often periods of absolutely frenzied activity. Yeah. Tell me about the moths of doom. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I love that phrase. Someone tweeted at me recently with hashtag moths of doom and I loved it. <laughs> so it was a phrase we came up with on the podcast and I actually have to credit it to a comedian friend of mine, Marianne Pashley. She was on an episode of series one of the podcast who, with Pippa Evans on that episode as well. And we were talking about the butterflies of love that you feel when you first meet somebody and how exciting that is. And then we were trying to think, what was it like when there's the sort of inverse of that, when you have that horrible little anxiety that your relationship is starting to go wrong and maybe it's the beginning of the end. (laughs) So Marianne just said, the moths of doom. We were like, oh yes, that is perfect. So I've really kind of kept that metaphor in the book and I Every time there's possibly a breakup happening, I I talk about the moths of doom fluttering around. Um, Now, the book also, you talk about the breakdown of friendships. And that's something that we don't give as much time to, but can be equally devastating in some ways as well. But yeah, they're they're not given as much time as romantic ones. Yeah, I, I talk about both professional breakups and friendship breakups, because I think these other types of endings can be equally traumatic and perhaps even more so because we don't have those social and cultural scripts for mourning them. We don't have songs about my boyfriend has left me and, you know, we don't have the ones about my best friend is not around anymore and I miss her and I don't know what to do without her. I don't know who to go and talk to and confide in. Um, And we don't have that same sort of permission to eat ice cream and sit on the floor when we were crying about the fact our friend is no longer around or, you know, our dream job or our perfect colleague that always bought us a cup of coffee and a bun (laughs) um you know and I think all these connections that we have in our lives are so important and so precious human connection is very fragile and very interesting and amazing and fantastic and so when we do gain something from being close to people because let's face it there are lots of people we don't like (laughs) as much Um, and when we meet those people we really enjoy being around that that means so much. And when they're not in our lives anymore, it is a real loss. It is a bereavement. And, you know, I also talk about how those losses are similar to, you know, actual bereavement and, and death. Yeah. Now, after all your research and your exploration into this, do you have the absolute um, method of how to get over somebody? Because lots of people listening will maybe be in the throes of a breakup or be contemplating it. Um, what is the best way to get back in the world because they are like you said about withdrawal it's there's a grief too and it's like it's like a death I think I mean I'm thinking about my my marriage breakup and when I realized that was happening and I mean I remember distinctly lying on the bed uh, just howling like I don't think I've howled in that way ever before or since you know 
It was like an mm. ache and the rejection and the feeling like that, it, that almost like part of your life is over. It's it's incredibly powerful. Um, what is your medicine? <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, it's interesting. We talk about it feeling like death. Um, in fact, one of the songs I quote in the book is by a fantastic Irish singer-songwriter I know called Cal Lavelle, who expresses this sense in, in one of her songs she performed live once on a radio show that I present, expresses this sense of it being very much like a death. But I think one of the important things that you can do to start to get over somebody is to remember not only the amazing lovely good things about that person and the relationship and the connection and the really happy memories which can just it can just feel so sad and you can feel like that person was the only one for you try to remember some of the arguments and the difficult things and the challenges about the relationship and start to understand that maybe that person wasn't the one or certainly not the only one and actually perhaps it's a relief to be free of some of the challenges that came with that connection and that relationship it's it's called a negative reappraisal strategy and it's sometimes used with alcoholics to stop them drinking you know if they think about the negative consequences of drinking it's like well actually I don't want to end up naked in in the gutter you know even though I do quite like a drink (laughs) um you know and it's the same thing you know I was a bit addicted to my partner who was the person who ultimately dumped me by email. But I'm not sure if in the latter part of our relationship, it was still a very healthy connection. You know, I think you can sort of need each other in a in a not healthy way and it can start to become a little bit toxic. And, you know, with hindsight, I can see it was the right thing that that relationship ended. I can see how being invisible in the world for someone like me who I do like to be very open about about being gay and <laughs> I've always been very open so it was just too much of a struggle for me to be with someone who didn't want to be as open about it and it was hard for her to be pressured by me so we were not really that compatible in this very complex and personal and intimate way because we wanted to present differently around this you know the intimate thing of our own sexuality which I guess it's our own choice as to how open we are about it or not and we just had a a really a real gulf in how we wanted to present that to the world and what if someone's listening now and they're they're experiencing the moths of doom and they think but they're they're they don't have the courage to uh to perhaps take that step to break up i mean that's another thing isn't it because sometimes people can be in relationships and the thought of not being in it seems like more hassle even though something tells you it's not right you know it's it's an awful place to be in how would you suggest people really um kind of uh, put a pin in that and understand it and then make the move to to uncouple as you put it <laughs> Yeah, I think oh it's it's horrible, isn't it? It's such a horrible feeling when things don't feel right. Um and I think probably the first step would be maybe to talk to a therapist. Um you know, there is a chapter in my book called Recovery and Reprogramming and it does talk a little bit about going to therapy, but also some of the other things you can do um to sort of start to feel more yourself and more present in the world like exercise and eating properly and and you know cuddling your cat and dog and you know all of these kind of things but um I do think ultimately if you are really all at sea 
in the way that I was in my um, relationship that ultimately ended when I got broken up with by email. And then in the next relationship, whereas with someone kind and lovely who I probably could have had a great relationship with, but I wasn't in the right place for it and still felt all at sea and wrong. Um, you know, I think what I ultimately needed was a good therapist. And I did eventually go to see a great therapist for a while after that breakup. And when I met girlfriend, who my fiance now, we had both um, just had some therapy and we were both in a really good place to start a very adult and mature relationship where we could communicate on a on a good, healthy and sometimes deep and sometimes challenging and difficult level because I think we'd been to that place <laughs> in the therapy room. I don't see a therapist anymore, but I think for that period of time, it was incredibly useful to just sort of start sorting things out. And I think it possibly would have been useful to do that much sooner while I was still in the relationship that I was in to kind of work out should I leave this relationship? Am I happy? What? Why is it that I've never been able to completely plug into it and be present in it? But, you know, sometimes it's the actual breakup that is the catalyst for us going to seek help. Um, one uh, issue in heterosexual couples that causes a lot of conflict, I think, and perhaps even more in the pandemic is uh, housework and division of labour and stuff like that. Oh, I always find it very interesting talking to lesbians about how <laughs> these things, because you don't have the gender thing, you know, the idea that the man puts out the bins and the woman does this, this stupid <laughs> idea that there should be, that, that housework is gendered, which of course it's not, because any idiot can bloody do all those things. Um, how Have you got any tips for people? Because I, I think you have wisdom <laughs> to impart on the housework situation. <laughs> Does equality <laughs> reign? Is it what people are good at in your house? So what way does it work? I mean, I I guess so, yes. Although I do think <laughs> it's really, really complicated. And we do still have tensions in our relationship because even though I think with the basic day-to-day -day housework, cleaning and stuff, I think we are quite 50-50. We are quite equal. We, You know, I often do bins and things but then again she's often really practical and doing things like that too and you know cleaning and um emptying the dishwasher and you know thank goodness we have a dishwasher they're so useful um you know there's a lot of admin around our pets as well we've a uh, <laughs> dog and cat um, who feature quite heavily in the book and now we have another little cat who sadly is very very disabled so requires a huge amount of care he's got this condition called cerebellar hyperplasia um so so yeah we, we've got a few challenges around that but I talk a little in the book about how my girlfriend is much more um I suppose you would say domestically ambitious and sort of <laughs> really wants to do loads of stuff to the house whereas I'm much more I guess like my dad and a bit fearful of change and I'm like but the house is great you know why do we need a new kitchen why do we need a new garden oh no there's gonna be you know men traipsing all over the house and so <laughs> So it's a constant negotiation about how much work we kind of do to, you know, keep the house looking really amazing and, and fabulous. And, you know, I mean, gosh, we're lucky that we can think about um, making our, our living space really nice, um, you know, and that's largely down to <laughs> largely down to girlfriend's salary rather than mine, let me tell you. <laughs> um, <when laughs> you're comedians and authors don't get paid that much. Do you observe your heterosexual friends, though, and see that that gender thing does come into, um, you know, managing a house more than it does for lesbian couples? 
yes, I think so. I think, you know, um, there's just this cultural programming going back so many, so many years, isn't there, that men kind of, even when they think they're doing 50%, they really aren't. Um, you know, and particularly all our programming about parenting and about motherhood and, you know, when couples have children, you do see the woman doing, <laughs> you know, the lion's share very, very frequently. And I just think as much as we have progressed and women are far more independent and, you know, we we don't necessarily see women as housewives anymore, it's sort of we now see women as as superwomen, don't we? And they're going to do it all and do everything. So I think it's incredibly difficult um, to to shed that programming. And I think perhaps even, you know, gay women who've stepped outside of the sort of normative box of of a lot of that conditioning, I guess we still have some sense as women, we have, you know, a duty to tend the home. I mean, my um, girlfriend's mother, even though she's been wonderfully embracing of our partnership and our relationship and she's happy to kind of sit asking Siri questions about LGBT history (laughs) it's brilliant you know where does the rainbow flag come from um (laughs) she is also quite traditional and you know my girlfriend has two elder brothers who she kind of doesn't expect to do stuff in their partnerships and in their relationships and in their homes um, whereas she clearly did program my girlfriend that she has to cook and clean and, and you know, do all of that kind of stuff. So it's quite interesting how even when we have deviated from the norm, there's still so much programming about what women are supposed to do in the home. And yeah, it's just, it's so much pressure, isn't it? It's just too much, I think. And that's why, that is perhaps why we see 75% of heterosexual divorces being initiated by women it might be that they're just doing so much and feel completely undervalued and and unappreciated (laughs) it'll be interesting when it comes to your wedding whenever you get to do that like will the mother-in-law be interested in who's wearing what and who's wearing a white dress or not a white dress or suit (laughs) you've all that ahead of you (laughs) yeah I mean it's it's interesting actually because um, I do quite like wearing a dress. Um, my partner may be less so, but I mean, she's gorgeous. She's really feminine, um, you know, but what does that even mean anyway? But she's probably more comfortable in in really gorgeous tailored trousers or I mean, she's probably actually more stylish than me. But when we get dressed up, like, for example, we did a, a photo shoot recently for Good Housekeeping oh magazine. Oh, my gosh. I know. Um, I'd written an article on my sort of changing views on marriage because as a student, I went on demos campaigning for for same-sex marriage, thinking it would just never be available to me. So I had an old photo of this wedding demo I'd gone on uh, in like 1992 as a student and sort of now, you know, planning my wedding aged 50. And so they were quite interested in in this story. And, and they did a photo shoot with us where they had all these lovely clothes for us to wear. And so in that kind of scenario where I haven't had to go out and buy the clothes and they're just there and there are like, you know, nice kind of high heels that someone's going to help me walk in across the room. <laughs> then I kind of enjoy just dolling up and doing that really kind of of feminised kind of womanhood um, just for fun. Whereas I guess my girlfriend, um, you know, doesn't go as overboard with 
oh, you know, oh, I love putting on, you know, a pair of stilettos. I mean, God, you would never catch me in them to, you know, do a day's work or actually have to go anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) But sort of dolling up for a photo shoot was quite fun. Mm. Um, And, yeah, it is really, really interesting, the sort of loaded politics of, of what you wear and what that means and what people read into that because we sort of hate the idea that if she did wear trousers that people think she's the man in inverted commas and she's the sort of butch one which is is <laughs> so far from the truth i think there are so many ways in which she's so much more girly than me like her makeup bag is like a million times the size of mine she <laughs> and she's the one who's taught me about expensive mascara yeah. and the benefits of of wearing better quality mascara isn't it interesting that wearing the trousers literally still signifies something you know that it's still a thing <laughs> that if you're at your wedding she, she wore the trousers that that would be the immediate signifier you know that that almost like we still have to interpret it in that way where there can't be just two women together doing you know being women in all its amazing you know diversity and all that kind of stuff but that's probably a conversation for another time I just think it's all very it's all fascinating um yes. now just finally as a comedian in a pandemic and a performer has this been a really terrible time for you I mean, you've obviously got the book and the podcast and you've pivoted in a very good way to be the breakup queen but how has it been oh god <laughs> Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to think how not to how not to end on a downer, but yeah, <laughs> it's really not been great for for all of us comedians because our lives really changed overnight. Suddenly, our diaries were emptying, and for me, yes, luckily it was not the worst timing because I had just got a contract to write a book, um, and so. Yes, I was able to knuckle down and do that. I had to really, really rethink how on earth to approach the podcast, though, because I had always been recording it live in front of an audience. That was my model for doing it, because I thought that's really fun. There's a great atmosphere when you've got applause and audience kind of reactions to things. Um, And also it was my way of covering costs of getting someone to edit the podcast for me and and upload it and that kind of thing, because we would have box office ticket money. So it was like, oh, no, how do I do it now? Uh, So I did do a, a short season over Zoom, but it's not quite it's not the same doing trying to. I mean, obviously, you can do a different type of thing and have a more in depth conversation like this. And that works. That still works really well. But. I think, um, you know, trying to be funny and have comedic conversations and trying to do stand up, it's it's not quite the same at all. Um, so it's great to see, you know, I am going and doing some festivals this summer and it's great to see those live events happening again. And let's hope that we can, you know, return to all that live activity safely and that it, it doesn't sort of cause you know, another spike in cases or anything like that, let's hope. Yeah, well, the book is called The Breakup Monologues, The Unexpected Joy of Heartbreak. So are you going to find another subject or will you milk this one for quite a bit more, um, Rosie? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll see. I mean, it, it has been, relationships in general has been an area that I've been talking about for quite some time. And I've really amassed all this kind of scientific knowledge about how relationships work psychologically as I say I've kind of taken part in this weird sex lab experiment where I was yeah, looking tell at erotica us about that. <laughs> yes well I was looking at erotica and my genital arousal was being measured um, <laughs> with a thing that I call a techno tampon in the book but it's actually called a plasithmograph and so 
it again, I think it touches on what we were saying earlier about female sexuality and it being really broad because they've often done these experiments with heterosexual women and found that their sexuality is much broader than the sort of cultural definitions that they have created, the labels they've created for their own sexuality. Um, and they weren't sure whether for lesbian women, whether that would be the same. And it was because I found myself kind of, I mean, not that I was in all honesty, that aroused by any of it. But but <laughs> I was equally aroused slash unaroused by images of women or men. But the really funny thing about it is that the control clip they show you in between the erotic images is um, is a David Attenborough nature documentary. <laughs> <laughs> so there we are. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it was a weird, weird kind of experiment. But like I say, I've been doing all these strange bits of, of research, doing a survey asking what counts as cheating, which informed my first book, Is Monogamy Dead? And, uh, you know, so I've been doing all this work into relationships for so many years that I think in some ways I will definitely keep talking and communicating about relationships because I also think it's important that people from outside of the very privileged, white, middle-class, heteronormative dynamic do that because we bring all of our identities into our relationships and even though there's a universality about how we fall in love and then fall out of love there's actually a huge amount of difference if you are a queer woman in a relationship with a woman as opposed to a heterosexual woman who has children and has a very uh, familiar kind of story and I think it's also you know I've noticed it's quite hard writing about relationships from a from a queer perspective there aren't that many books by people who are outside of the sort of heteronormative narrative and I think part of that is because publishers are scared because I think they think readers and audiences will gravitate towards familiar stories of you know women who've got divorced and, and had two children and 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 seem like them and are, are white and and all of this kind of stuff so I do think it's important to have diverse books about relationships, which is why I would say, you know, um, heterosexual readers out there, please do um, enjoy my book because I, I am a big old lesbian and I do talk about having relationships with women. But there's tons of stuff that is really, really universal and also maybe slightly ahead of the curve um, because I do think I sometimes think outside of the box a little bit. Um, and I even interview someone about whether we might be able to take an anti-love drug in the future to help us get over the trauma of a breakup, a bit like a real life version of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So I think there's, you know, there's a lot in there um, that I think everybody, I hope, will relate to. Um, but I really want to fly the flag for people just outside of the the box of normativity, writing books about love and relationships. I think you need to put that on your Twitter bio. Big old lesbian who thinks outside the box. It's a good one. <laughs> and uh, thank you very much for, for coming on the Women's Podcast and talking to us all about it. The book, as I said, The Breakup Monologues, The Unexpected Joy of Heartbreak. And it's been really lovely talking to you. Thank you, Rosie. Thank you so much. That was breakup queen Rosie will be there and thanks very much to her the book as I said is called The Breakup Monologues The Unexpected Joy of Heartbreak that's all we have time for the podcast is produced by me Roisin Ingle by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound contact us on social on Instagram Facebook or Twitter using 
at IT Women's Podcast. We're on email to the women's podcast at irishtimes.com and we love hearing from you. Until the next time, mind yourselves and thanks very much for listening. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. warbyparker.com covered.